In the second year of Darius, the king, he was a king of the Medes and Persians, in the sixth month of his second year, and on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So this morning is an introduction to the prophet Haggai. I'm, I've reread him this week and discovered what I should have realized long ago. He's actually a good news prophet. Isn't it great to have a good news prophet after all the others we've been listening to? But we have to go a long way back to understand why it's such good news. Okay? In fact, we need to go back to the time of David, which is perhaps 800 years previous. Because when David became king and united the tribes of Israel into one kingdom, um, his desire, once he'd moved his headquarters into Jerusalem, was to build a house for the Lord. Because the Lord God Almighty, Yahweh, had brought them out of Egypt. He'd brought them through the turmoil of their, their tribal um, times. And now he'd brought them into this united kingdom. And he wanted to build a house for God. A temple where his glory should reside. So people would know that the God who was with them in the wilderness, you know, the pillar of cloud by day and the fire by night. A place where the presence of God could be almost felt in the midst of his own people. But David was a man of war, and God said to David, great idea, you're not going to do it. Your son Solomon will do this, but I tell you what, David, there's no need for you to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And he spoke this through the prophet Nathan. And David was astonished because what God was promising to David was that he would be established in the kingdom of Israel and his descendants for generation after generation would continue, in the royal line would continue and God actually said, I will give you a, an everlasting kingdom that doesn't end. That is a fantastic promise. And we read that David bowed down and he was in awe. Who am I that you should make such a promise to me? But of course it was a promise to David and a blessing to Israel. And after David, his, his son Solomon did build this gorgeous, glorious temple. A rich, rich place. <laughs> So that people came and wondered at it. Now then, we have to stampede years and years forward from that. And now we've got to the time that our prophets that we've been looking at have been speaking about. They've been speaking about an Israel who is established in the land. They've got the temple in Jerusalem. They've got David's line, the, 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 royal, the royal family continuing on the throne as it has done all those hundreds of years. But now the people have disobeyed God to such an extent and taken on the worship of the idols of the nations round about that God says, my, my glory no longer resides here, in effect. 
You've given my, my glory to these other gods and to the, these other purposes and I can't stand it any longer. And you remember that the prophet spoke to Israel for more than 100 years, 100, 150 years, saying, if you don't do something about it, then I'm afraid I'm going to have to discipline you and the discipline will be that you will be overrun by the powers of the north and you'll be taken off and Jerusalem will be smashed. And the people didn't listen. And the powers of the north did come down. First the Assyrians, and then when they'd been defeated by the Babylonians, the Babylonians came in, and they smashed Jerusalem to the ground. Remember they smashed the wall down. Do you remember reading in Nehemiah how, how the people round about taunted? They said, well, even if a fox walks on that, it will fall over. That's how the city was smashed. And the temple was smashed. The house of the glory of God. The glory of God seemingly dissipated. And the nations have taken control. And the idols have won. And the king was taken into exile. And everything, all God's promises to Israel through David are now smashed and you can see their dreams in this rubble. Now then, if we could have the first slide, please. Uh, for those of you who are visiting us on the podcast, there's a slide now. There's a timeline. The timeline shows that in 539 BC, that the Babylonian kingdom was overrun by the Medes and the Persians. Babylon fell and a, a new king was installed and his name was Cyrus, which means shepherd. And Cyrus decreed that uh, the peoples of Judah could return to their land and you can read this in Ezra's, Ezra chapter 1 and chapter 2 that Cyrus extraordinarily decreed that the Judean people could go back to their land he handed back to them all the artifacts from the temple which had been taken away when Jerusalem was sacked 70 or so years previously. He gave these back to them and he said, go back and you may rebuild your temple. And may the peoples round about support you with money and so on. And so an edict has been declared and nearly 50,000 people returned returned to this smashed up land of theirs, which in the meantime had been inhabited, inhabited by the poor who were left behind at the time of the siege and then the destruction of Jerusalem and by alien groups of people who had been planted there by the conquerors. This was, it was a tactic of the, of the, of the powers in those days. If they, if they conquered a land, they took the survivors off and replanted them somewhere else in a different culture where they no longer had any power, where they were disorientated. And in the same way, people had been brought into the area surrounding Jerusalem. So when these 50,000 people, so people actually got back, uh, they discovered this ruin. But they had been encouraged 
by the king, Cyrus, that they could rebuild their temple. So they set to work on it. Set to work on it in um, 537-ish, before Christ. But then you knew that. (laughs) And it got off to a really good start until, and Ezra says, their adversaries in the land around about, their adversaries said, oh, we see what you're doing. Can we help you build your temple, please? And Zerubbabel, we will come to Zerubbabel in a minute, and Joshua, Zerubbabel was the governor of Jerusalem, and Joshua, or Jeshua, was the priest, the high priest in Jerusalem amongst the returned exiles. These said to them, the the foreigners, no, you can't. Now, we don't know what on earth was in the mind of the people that came and said, can we help you build your temple? But Ezra definitely states they were their adversaries. So as Baldrick would say, there was a cunning plan in there somewhere. And it wasn't nice. And so the leaders said, no, you can't. And as soon as they said that, the adversaries became adversarial. And they began to bribe officials to hinder the work. They began to sort of build up fear programs to stop the work. They began to discourage the work. And eventually they sent off a letter um, to, to the capital, the, the Medes and Persian capital somewhere, saying, uh, do you know what these people are doing? Stop it. But it was some years before that was dealt with. But the people lost heart and the work on the temple stopped. So you have to understand, it's because of fear, because corrupt officials are being bribed to stop them, and all the original euphoria. God has kept his promise which he gave us through, through Jeremiah. Jeremiah had said, 70 years and then you will be released. And then along came Cyrus. And Cyrus did it. And God is great. And God has sent us back to our land. And now we're going to rebuild the temple, the former glory. <clears throat> but it didn't happen like that. And now they've stopped. And even when they started to build the temple, we're told in Ezra that the people who were really old and and must have been very old and had returned with them and remembered the glory of the former temple wept when they saw the foundations they were putting in for the new one because there was no comparison. And some people were joyous as they started these foundations um, back in... um, 537. Some people were rejoicing and some people were weeping. And Ezra says, you couldn't tell the difference between the two. There was uproar. People thrilled that we're building the temple. People absolutely broken because it's nothing like the old one. And then it stops and everybody is heartbroken. And so you can imagine how the whole community then relapses into a kind of corporate depression and uncertainty and misery And all the questions come up again. Where is God? What was he doing? Where are the promises of old? What's the point? Let's get on with our lives. Oh, at least we're not in Babylon. You can almost feel it happening, can't you? And then along comes Haggai. And he says to Zerubbabel, remember, the governor, and to Joshua, the high priest, and to all the people, Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So we're now speaking in the year 520. You work it out, 17 or so 
16 years has gone by in activity. The unfinished work on the temple just lying as a kind of accusation against everybody, as, a, as an emphasis of how depressed they are. The people say the time has not come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you, your, for, is it a time for you yourself to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins? So you can understand what's happened. I can understand what's happened. They become demoralized and depressed and scared and it's all stopped and there's nothing to do. What shall we do? Well, let's just get on with our lives. And that's what they did. So they built their panelled houses and they made their little courtyards and they've got their little vineyards sort of in their way of what they're doing beginning to come together and uh, they're looking after themselves because everybody, everything else has just failed. Where is God? And now here comes Haggai which what's with what sounds like an accusation from God saying, is this a time for you to live in your panelled houses when my house still lies in ruin? Whose glory are you living for lies behind that question. Whose glory are you living for? We live for the glory of God. Their purpose was to glorify God. So, what are you building? Now, it really does sound like the old prophets all over again, doesn't it? Naughty, naughty. But this is a depressed people. Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. And you clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag of holes. Um, that sounds very much like the complaint of people who do live for themselves. The more that people sort of my perception, you might want to correct me, but my perception is that the people who live generally, gen, generally selfish lives are never satisfied. doesn't matter how much money they've got, it all slips through their fingers or they need some more. Or the house that they build isn't big enough and they need an extra bedroom so that their little two-year-old can have a room to itself or whatever. That's, this is my impression, if you understand. Um, and so here we've got a people who are now forgotten the glory of God, building up their own lives, but nothing's working for them either. It seems, however, that God's finger was in this, that it's not just psychological what's going on in their minds here. Because thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills, bring the wood, build the house so that I can take pleasure in it, so that I can be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold it came to little and when you brought it home I blew it away. Why? declares the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. So the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce and I've called for a drought on the lands and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, 
and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labours. Grain for the staple diet of food, grapes for their drink, and oil for their cooking and all the stuff that they did. Not working. Now this doesn't really sound like good news, does it? But the beginning of good news is to consider. The word repentance has been used a lot recently. I'm really glad. But there are different views of the word repentance. There's repent or die. Or there's repent and live. And that's what repentance is supposed to be about. Consider, think it through, and live. And so the good news here <clears throat> is that when Zerubbabel and, and Joshua and the people hear this, the people feared the Lord. I find that extraordinary. Every preacher wants to preach a sermon and discover that at the end of it, the people fear God. Oh Lord, do it. They consider, they think, they say, that's right. We did give in to the fear mongers. We did listen to our adversaries. We did let those corrupt officials get on top of us. We allowed them to push us down and look what they've done and look what we've done as a result. We've gone off and we've turned our back partially on God and looked after our own lives. We got it wrong, didn't we? But we do fear the Lord, don't we? So come on guys, let's get on with it. So the people feared the Lord and then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and Shealtiel, son of Shealtiel, and the spirit of Joshua and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord their God. And they did it on the 24th. Can we have the next slide, please? They did it in a six month on the first day. That's when August the 29th, the year 520 BC, is when Haggai developed this message, delivered this message. And straight away the people feared God and straight away the people thought about it and talked about it and then they said, we're going to get off our backsides and we're going to do God's stuff. It's right. And that is repentance in action. It's not groveling. It's not weeping for the next ten years. It's not writing a list of all the terrible things we've done and trying to make certain we don't leave everything out. It's turning back to God and saying, God, you're right. We've considered. Now we're going to do your stuff. Because we fear you, Lord. We love you. Isn't that awesome? Here's a people who after 16 years have had their wake-up call and now they're doing it for God. Now then, applications are obvious, aren't they? All around you, there's things to depress you. Some of you have been a bit fed up with the church over the years. 
And they have been the scaremongers. They've been the doom speakers. And then there's the stresses of work. And then there's the pressures of the secular world. And we talk about our almighty God. And we want to build his kingdom. But all these other things crowd in. And what happens to us? We get squashed into this mould where even we are in danger of looking after our own interests, although we do care about God. And the word of the prophet came from the Lord, glorify me, God. And the people said, yes. Yes. Let's do it. So, the restoration of the temple begins, that thing that was lost. They started on the seventh, on the, so that on August the 29th, 520, Haggai spoke his first word to the people, consider. By September the 21st, the people had started their work and God was stirring up their spirit to it. So we turn back to God and we say, well, where's God, where's God? And then we come to that point where we turn back and say, okay, Lord, we got it wrong, but from now on, we're going for it. And then God comes and stirs up our spirit. We want him to stir up our spirit before we've done anything. But he says, consider. You consider. And then he stirs up the spirit. And the wonderful thing about this is that back along, when they left, their, uh, when, when Cyrus sent them off back to their own country, we read in Ezra that God stirred up their spirit. And that stirring, that's all gone down, it's gone down, they've settled, they've settled, they've settled. Nothing has happened because of their, their corporate depression. And now they start to do something about it. And God stirs up their spirit again. The leaders and the people. Ah, that must have been a really exciting time to be in Jerusalem. Even though everything still looked as though it was in ruins around them. Even though their adversaries were still there going, na, 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 na. That was September the 21st. By October the 17th, this is happening. The word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel and to Joshua the the high priest and to all the remnant of the people and say, Who is among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now, be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I'm with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that was made with you when you came up out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Don't be scared, scared, because this is what the Lord of hosts says. Yet once more, 
And in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land and I will shake all nations so that all the treasures of the nations will come in. And it will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, says the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former glory, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace. Now this is fantastic because we're still looking at an incomplete building in an incompletely rebuilt Jerusalem. And God is saying, but now you've started and I'm stirring up your spirit and I want you to know that the covenant that I made with Israel, which seemed to have been absolutely, you're wondering what what has happened to the covenant when we went off into Babylon, but I promised I will never forget my covenant. And you've come back and for 16 years you haven't done anything, but now you've turned and you've started and I want you to know that I'm still with you. The Lord of hosts is still with you. I never said I'd ever leave you, did I? I'm still with you, and my covenant still stands for all generations. As I said to Moses, I am still relating myself to you, and still consider yourself to be you to be my people. And don't mourn over what you see, because I'm telling you, from on high I can tell you, the days are going to come when you would be astonished at the glory I give to this place. It's a very different kind of temple that Jesus walked into, wasn't it? Years and years later, when uh, the presence of God in Christ walked into the courts and pronounced peace. Well, So you look at the circumstances around you in your day and you can't see how on earth it's going to happen. But he's the Lord of hosts who has made a covenant and a promise. And he's made a promise with us. He's made a new covenant with you and me. With us. A new covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ. And you can look at the circumstances around you as much as you like, but that has not broken God's covenant with us. Wake up! Start doing the stuff instead of grumbling about what isn't being done. Start glorifying God in our own lives and in your lives. Let him stir up our spirit because he's still with us. And Jesus is still risen. There's a a banner at the back there which says he's risen. When you go and get your coffee, turn around and look at it. He's risen. I was thinking about this the other day. He's risen and it suddenly occurred to me. It says somewhere, he was dead. It just struck me. He was dead. Now I've seen my mother dead. I've seen my father dead. I know what dead looks like. He was dead. But he's risen. How do you do that, God? What kind of extraordinary power? What wonderful thing have you got Lord that this saviour who was dead is risen and active and working with your supernatural glorious power well God said to them I am in your midst 
I am with you. I have not forgotten my promises. I have not reneged on my covenant. You just wait and see what God is going to do. Now get on with your bit. Same for us. So, Haggai has spoken on the 29th of August, the 21st of September, the 17th of October, and he's about to speak twice on December the 18th. And then he disappears from the history books. Six months, well, less than six months, August, September, October, November, five months of powerful ministry. So, on December the 18th, we read this. Ask the priest about the law. If somebody carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food for that matter, does it become holy? The priests answered and said, nope. So Haggai said, okay, if somebody who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people, and now it sounds bad news again for a moment, so it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord, and so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider, from this day onwards, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? So this is for 16 years since stone was first laid, okay? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. One came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me then, I put in the then, declares the Lord. Consider, from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from December the 18th, the year 520. Since the day of the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Mm -mm. Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree, they have not yielded anything. But from this day on, I will bless you. Now isn't that great? It might not sound great to begin with, but here's a people who've been going through a period of depression and um, disinterest in God and they've, um, they've been getting on with their own stuff for 16 years. And so all these things are true, but now they've considered, they've turned, they've put their shoulder to the work and God is saying, well, it's over. <laughs> Hallelujah. It's over. Because from today, you are going to see a difference. 
I promise. Isn't that great? That is good news. It sounds to me very much like Jesus in Mark's Gospel when he comes and says, Repent! Oh, there's that word again. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Whoa! (laughs) There is promise, hope, salvation, liberation, emancipation, freedom. God. So this is good news. Oh yes, they're thinking. I remember, we remember, we remember. We thought we turned, we thought we turned. We have turned. He's saying from this day, 18th of December, God's going to bless us. Whoa. Thank you, God. What an encouragement. Now that is a good news prophet. Then, It seems that Haggai goes home or goes off and does some shopping or goes off to the temple precinct or something and then suddenly God says, I've got something else for you to do today. Same day. So this is right at the end of Haggai. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on that same day. Now speak to Zerubbabel. Now you need to know that Zerubbabel was a descendant of King David. Direct line. Okay? And you have to understand that just before all those years ago when Israel were taken into exile, they had a king called Coniah, or Jeconiah. And God sent a message to this king which said, even if you were a signet ring on my finger, I would take you off and throw you away. Goodbye, Davidic line. You've failed like the nation have failed. Okay? Now listen to this. Speak to Zerubbabel, the descendant of David. I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms and the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. The horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day, which is a prophetic way of saying, on that moment sometime in the not quite when future, when's it going to be future, On that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, says the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring because I've chosen you. So, they went into exile. Everything was lost. The land was lost. The temple was lost. The kingdom was lost. The king was put down. And now they've come back. They've been through this terrible time of depression. They've turned back and they've started to work just what they can do. It doesn't look beautiful yet. It doesn't look wonderful. It still needs work done on it. But suddenly God said, I'm stirring up your spirit. I am with you. I've remembered the covenant. You're going to have a magnificent temple again. And I'm going to restore the Davidic kingdom. I have not forgotten my promise to David of an everlasting kingdom. Hallelujah. This is full salvation to these people. 
even though they don't see it yet. It's in the promise of God, because if God says it, have I not said it, and will I not do it? God is not a man that he should lie, says the scripture. His word is his word, his promise. So, can't see it yet, but how? Look what lies ahead of us. Ah, but I will hear you say, just as the children in school say when I tell them the story of David and I tell them that uh, he was going to have an everlasting kingdom and they want to know whatever happened to it. Jesus happened to it. That's what happened to it. They didn't have their king back as a kingdom, but the line of David continued, and of the line of David, both Mary and Joseph, from different roots, were members of that line, and in that line was born one, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, by the fantastic intervention of the Holy Spirit. This man shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. He is the Messiah, and he is the King. He was dead, but he is alive again, and there is an everlasting kingdom which has been promised to the line of David and to all who trust in God. Isn't that fantastic? Now, you belong to an everlasting kingdom. You belong to a God who says, consider now, put your shoulder to the, whatever it is you put your shoulder to, get on with it, I will fill you with your spirit, I will energize you all over again, I will begin to bless you, because you belong to a kingdom which can't end. And you belong to a king who reigns eternally. And what God has said he'd done, I, I, I think some of these prophecies in the Bible seem to me a bit like Doctor Who, if I can use that. I mean, he kind of dies, and then he takes on a new kind of persona, sort of a new, he, so, yeah, but he, he's not Scottish any longer, or whatever, you know. <laughs> and it's something like that with the prophecies. The prophecy has its time, and then the time seems to be up, and then it seems to be like Doctor Who. It has this new expression. And God's word works through generations like that. Which makes his word living. And his word is living now. So, Lord, help us to hear it and live in it. Amen.